The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. This episode is brought to you by Google Pixel, the official fan phone of the NBA and WNBA. The new Pixel 8 and Pixel 8 Pro are built different. How? Take the audio magic eraser tool that helps block out distracting crowd noise so your play-by-play commentary sounds crystal clear. The only phone engineered by Google brings out the audio you care about so your videos sound as crisp as they look. Learn more at googlestore.com forward slash pixel NBA. Audio magic eraser requires Google Photos app. May not work on all audio elements. Hey, welcome to The Lowdown, part of the Afterburn podcast where we talk and give you an insider view of everything that's going on, aviation defense and geopolitics. I'm your host, John Waters. This week has been an incredibly busy week. So with that being said, let's jump right into it. Kicking off in the aviation space first. So you might remember we've talked about it in a few of our newsletters as well as uh, on the lowdown episodes as well. The URL A320, the Airbus that landed in a field back in September. Well, they're talking about flying it out of the field now, which is quite an interesting turn of events in my humble opinion. If you're a newsletter subscriber, you definitely have already seen the picture that popped up. If you're watching this on YouTube, obviously you're seeing it as well. If you're just listening, just imagine an A320 in the middle of a field with a bunch of tire tracks leading up to it. So... Uh, without saying, or I guess obvious without having to say this, but I'll say it, it's an unprepared uh, surface. The fact that this plane didn't break up and roll into a fireball, even though it had no fuel, uh, I guess was probably, it was an absolute miracle. But this Ural A320, remember they had a hydraulic issue on approach to landing. They elected to go around. The crew started troubleshooting it. They said, hey, we need a longer runway. So they, again, elected to divert. They did not realize the gear did not come back up, resulting in a higher fuel burn. On the way to their divert field, they realized they were running out of fuel and weren't going to make it to their destination, so they landed in a field. Well, now, again, they're planning on flying this out of the field. URL Airlines is confident in quoting that the aircraft is in good condition. Tests have shown that the engines don't need repairing. To me... I don't buy this. That would be an absolute miracle that there's no structural damage. There's no damage to the landing gear. The engines didn't ingest FOD and have some kind of damage to it. They're talking about taking the seats out of this thing and flying it out. Crazier things have happened. We have seen aircraft land gear up. They lift it up with a crane, lower the gear, and do a couple inspections and fly it out. That's typically on a runway and you're flaring still at the same rate, etc., I'm sure it's incredibly violent and you don't want to be there. But when you're talking about taking an airplane off-roading, just next time you're flying, if you can, look out the window, 
once you land your taxiing round. Even the most well-designed airports in between the runways and taxiways are often very deep because they run into drainage ditches, etc. Imagine driving your car off-road at 140 miles an hour. If it even is a flat farmer's field, there's going to be potholes, etc. This would be a miracle. They didn't respond whether Airbus had talked to them or if they had been able to talk to Airbus engineers. But anytime something like this happens of this magnitude, you're typically involving engineering companies, typically involving manufacturing engineers who really can dissect this plane and, and determine if it can take off again or can fly again. Well, let's say there's no damage to this. Now you're going to back this thing up or turn it around the field somehow and you're going to take it off. You know, what's your takeoff and landing distance? Uh, are you going to hit a pothole that's going to bend and careen the plane uh, into a weird configuration? There's so many questions here, but we obviously know the Russians have been hit hard with the sanctions, especially when it comes to their airliners. They can't get parts. They can't get equipment to repair these things. So I imagine there's some kind of desperation to get this thing flying again. But my recommendation is uh, I would probably skip the discounted fare on URL Airlines if that ever becomes an option. Moving on to Reno. The preliminary report out of the T6 crash that killed two pilots back in September is out. The two pilots were flying race 6 and race 14. Those were the plane numbers. Race 66 is the pilot that they quote in the preliminary report, which he notes that they were not in the spot they expected. Again, I have the the picture of the diagram in the newsletter, and I'll put it up on the screen here as well. But not being where they expected, they said race six was a slightly uh, tight pattern. Race 14 was a slightly wide pattern or a wider pattern when race 66 visually acquired him. So I'm assuming race 66 is high and above. Uh, these two, when he sees them, these two pilots in the previous two races were obviously in different spots. We build, especially in aviation, our habits and we lean on what we expect to happen based on previous experience. There are definitely probably some assumptions being made and and by not even assumptions, if their race six is trying to acquire 14 or vice versa, you're burning brain bites as you just finish a very taxing and grueling uh, race there. These guys, I know their heart rates are elevated and they're, they're burning a lot of calories and they're working hard flying down low and fast to the ground. And this is the first time they really probably can take a break, but you can't even take a break because you got to fly this thing all the way to chalk. But that's the first ease um, in the last, you know, 25 minutes of these of, of their life there. My one anecdotal story I'll tie to this was an expectation I had. My second air show was at Sun and Fun back in 2017. I'm flying with two Mustangs and an A-10. We flew multiple days in a row. Based on how we finished the show, I ended up landing last in the F-16. Not really the spot like you want to be, but we practice it, we've done it, we brief it. So you're just aware that there is additional risk there and you just must be dotting your I's and crossing your T's making this stuff happen. Well, it was like the fourth iteration of this. The A-10 pilot, as I touch down, I see his spoilers, where they call them the A-10, more drag is popping up off his jet than I'd ever seen before. And I quickly assess the distance that I utilize the previous couple flights was not going to work. It was going to be insufficient spacing. 
So I immediately select military power and go around. You don't do touch and goes in the F-16, but hey, this is a chance to do it because you don't want to run into an A-10. In the debrief, talking to him, in his mind, in his decision-making process, what caused him to change his braking pattern was he didn't want to be the plane going off the end of the runway. If you remember the F-16 that went off the runway at Oshkosh several years back, I think that was playing in his mind because now there was a bigger crowd out there. And so he's like, I don't, I don't know why I did that. I shouldn't have changed it. I should have said something. He's like, yep, copy. Uh, because we're changing a habit pattern. We're changing an expectation that, that's happening there and resulted in me going around. Luckily, I saw the, the, the big spoilers and speed brakes. And it was easy to discern that there was going to be a closure factor on my end. But this all ties back into the fact that as aviators, we build expectations. And when those expectations don't happen, you're usually burning more brain bites trying to figure out why this is not happening. Not saying this is what's going on with race 14 and 16, but I think it's an assumption to make that these guys were probably trying to figure out where one or another was. Again, after a very taxing 20 minutes or so of racing these planes around the pattern there. So the Reno Air Races, this was their final year. I think they had been racing for over 50 years. Yeah, in fact, racing since 1964, I see here. Lots of incidents throughout the year. Not uncommon to be bumping wings and swapping paint. Unfortunately, not uncommon for planes to be crashing. Uh, I think over 24 pilots have been killed in the Reno Air Race history. They had uh, over 10 spectators killed in 2011 when a P-51 had a trim tab failure, if I remember correctly. And the plane like instantaneously pitched up, snapped apart, and a large majority of that energy went into the crowd. Subsequently, they ended up backing the crowd up and changing the profile of the race. Uh, I'm sure I'm, I'm butchering a few pieces of the there, but that's the gist of it. I did get to attend the 2018 race, which was incredible to be able to part of, but it's no joke. You're putting a lot of iron in the same piece of sky going really fast. And unlike bumper cars, when you bump planes together, it usually doesn't work out well. Jumping over to Texas. So Austin Bergstrom Airport. You might remember the FedEx and Southwest plane that almost had a catastrophic disaster with the FedEx plane landing on the Southwest airliner. A lot of factors that go into it. Bad weather. The Southwest plane is taking a long time on the runway. The FedEx plane is cleared to land. I'll link the YouTube video down to that below. But Austin Bergstrom, they had another one. Uh, this past or two weeks ago. And this was just coming out now, but it's between an F-18 and a Cessna Citation. It sounds like there was some confusion between the controller and what he was expecting the F-18 to do. And the F-18 was communicating what he was doing, assuming the controller was understanding him. Basically, where the F-18 was going to break in the overhead pattern is what I uh, surmised from the article here. But Delta and Frontier had a near midair. I don't know what the incident rate per 100,000 or 10,000, whatever the FAA uses at an airport, but three major incidents uh, near catastrophic or could be catastrophic uh, at Austin this past year seems like a relatively high percentage for something for an airport of this size. But maybe someone who is attuned to the FAA data can chime in with a comment and enlighten us all here. In 2020, the FAA reported over 4,394 4, near misses 
interesting because there wasn't a whole lot of airliner traffic going on in 2020. I think there was a little thing called COVID going around. Now, GA flying, uh, I would assume, was probably vastly higher just based on seeing what airplane prices did uh, starting in 2020 and there on. Near miss, not sure exactly what they're classifying that here in that number, but outside 500 feet, you're considered well clear. 500 feet is really not that far away when you're talking about speeds of even 80 knots or 150 knots, let alone 300 knots. If you're pointing beak to beak, uh, that 500 feet becomes zero feet very quickly. So moral of the story, keep your nugget on a swivel if you're flying around out there. We've talked about the near mid midair, not near midair, the TCAS, the traffic collision uh, avoidance system. The uh, Spirit Airlines flight had last week in the newsletter and that was at 23,000 feet in Class A airspace. So you have to be instrument flight rules up there. You're under air traffic control. People are looking at radar. So if you are off altitude, someone's going to chime in and yell at you very quickly. But even you know, in today's modern airspace with all the bells and whistles and technology, stuff can happen. So never let your guard down. On to defense. So unless you've been living under a rock, the past week, you're well aware that Hamas attacked Israel uh, this past week, and it has led to a full-on onslaught with more to come, I would imagine. The evacuation order that Israel issued to Gazan Strip residents, again, I'm probably butchering that, that's expired. So over a million people, about a little over 2 million, 2.2 million people live in a 25-mile strip there in Gaza, so heavily uh, populated, very, very dense. They ordered the evacuation, which clearly signals Israel's intent to conduct full-scale or aggressive military operations into Gaza. The United States has also, they've deployed F-15s, F-35s, A-10s to the region. The Marine Corps 26 uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit departed and exercised early from Kuwait. They arrived there, and two days later, they're packing up, getting back onto the boat. They're now awaiting further tasking as a result of emerging events, end quote. The U.S. Navy moved the USS Ford Carrier Strike Group further in the eastern Mediterranean. And then the USS Enterprise departed port this weekend, heading to the Mediterranean. The intent there, according uh, to Navy officials, is to relieve the USS Ford. However, there have also been quotes of standing by for a further tasking. So, uh, obviously, a lot of U.S. presence flowing to and in and around that region should things escalate further. The E3 Century AWACS Airborne Warning and Control System, a big old plane. Again, if you're looking on YouTube, you can see it. But if you're not, you can just imagine a Boeing 707 with a big old Frisbee hanging on top. The Air Force is retiring those. They're being replaced with a newer version, E7 Wedgetail, which is based on the 737 body. A lot of changes have happened in the U.S. Air Force force structure in the last few years. Some pretty rapid changes, uh, such as the J-Star, which we talked about a few weeks ago in the newsletter, flying its last flight, realizing that when we're going into near-peer threats or near-peer adversaries and contested environments, these large platforms uh, won't be needed or a different version as well as capabilities is needed. So, the upgraded Wedgetail will definitely have a better radar system, be able to provide that air picture. The AWACS is down to 18 
aircraft, the 13th jet to leave to the Boneyard Davis Mothin, left on September 21st. The E3, again, is based on the 707 body, which first flew in 1957. Boeing has upgraded the AH-64 Apache attack helicopter. It has had its first flight. Looks like they're getting upgraded data link pilot interface, as well as open architecture to allow future technologies to be implemented. Those in the tech space who are smarter than me, I can recognize that this is a pretty big deal coming from the F-16 where the software, any kind of change you wanted to make had to be put on a list and it would sit on that list for years and years, racked and stacked based on priorities. And then it would be determined if it could be put into the code. Ironically enough, guard F-16s had a different structure where they could actually make coding changes fairly quickly. So if they realized that a button wasn't doing what it really wanted them to do or was doing something funky or they would like, hey, this this switch to do this, um, and the guard, they could actually go right to the, the person and they can make that change in the code and then squirt it to all the jets. Having that open architecture allows for those rapid changes to be made. So interesting to see that coming about. It'd be nice if it happened everywhere else. Belgian... Um, the Belgians have decided to provide F-16 to Ukraine not earlier than 2025, and it does not have a number associated with it. So that's also happening. I mean, it wouldn't be an episode if we didn't talk about China. So let's jump into the geopolitics of the world. China's increased its military activities in the Taiwan Strait. Just yet another underscore of the tensions that are in the region. So the U.S., has put the USS Reagan around Korea and made port calls in South Korea. That's tied to some North Korean missile launches. But the Chinese intercepted and warned a Navy P-8 flying through the Taiwan Straits. The newsletter has a snapshot, again, of the number of PLA airspace violations from 2022. Be curious to see what 2023 is. Um, But if you're just looking month to month, August, for instance, had over 408 as incursions. That's the defense uh, zone that goes around sovereign nations. But like on average, uh, probably about 150 incursions each month there. So a lot happening uh, in that part of the world. And I don't think it's going to ease up anytime soon. North Korea has delivered weapons to Russia for its fight in Ukraine. Over a 1,000 containers with equipment and munitions were observed in recent weeks being moved from North Korea aboard a Russian-flagged vessel to a Russian city, uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, near the Ukrainian border, about 180 miles from the Ukrainian border. This comes right on the heels of Kim Jong-un's visit to Russia. If you remember that, that was a six-day visit he made, which is the longest visit he's made outside of his country since 2011. Russia obviously has been uh, engaged in this war and undoubtedly hurting for supplies. The North Koreans have huge stockpiles of ammo, guns, etc. that can easily be integrated into the Russians because most of it's all Soviet-era stuff or based on Soviet-era designs. And then as a flip side, the North Koreans want more advanced technology, fighter aircraft, surface-to-air missile systems, etc. So I'm sure there is some horse trading that's going on between North Korea and Russia when it comes to that. Easy thing. Give them bullets and they're going to give you 
more technology to make you more dangerous in the region. Afghanistan has suffered a massive earthquake as well as some aftershocks. The Taliban government is reporting about 2,000 dead. The UN, I think the last number I saw is around 1,200. But those familiar with Afghanistan, obviously the buildings there are mostly built out of mud and brick, not really designed to sustain earthquakes. Again, this was in the western city of Herat there, so they are just definitely not catching a break. Sticking to Afghanistan, as we wrap up here, the Taliban has joined the Belt and Road Forum. This is significant as, again, you have a nation such as China recognizing a government that uh, the so-called Taliban has put together. There's tremendous amounts of resources inside Afghanistan. Obviously, the Taliban government would benefit from economic resources and allowing the Chinese to come in and harvest minerals, etc., and st- and further their footprint in the region and continue there. So again, a lot going on uh, with that. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, thanks to my Patreon supporters. Thanks for leaving ratings or review. Hope you enjoyed this. If you're interested in ad-free as well as there are was stories and early access to these episodes, swing over to Patreon and you can join us there. Our next after afterburn podcast episode is going to be coming out this week with Habu. He's a former A-10 pilot, 20 years in the Air Force, started off as a Wizzo, then an A-10 fighter pilot, A-10 demo pilot, and much more. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you next time. The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain.